If you'd open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, it's near the very end of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, excuse me. 1 Timothy, yes, we're still preaching verse 1, but I'm going to try to extend that to verse 4 today. If you remember, the book of Timothy is a public letter. It's written specifically to Timothy from Paul, but it's meant for the whole church, for all time. And Paul has charged Timothy. He's commissioned Timothy to do something important, which is defend the gospel and to train the church. Paul says, what I'm telling you came straight from God. If I say it, then it's from God. It's inspired. My gospel is God's gospel, and these false teachers who teach something different, they need to be put out. So he admonishes Timothy to do this and to be diligent. But then he also, in chapter 2, begins to give specific instructions for worship. How should this household of God, this family of God, worship? What should they be doing? And he says that first of all, they should pray. We talked about prayer last week, how important it is that the church prays and how someone who considers themselves a Christian should pray. And if you have no desire to pray, then you probably have no hope in being saved because the Holy Spirit will give you a great desire and passion for prayer to commune with your God, the God who saved you. This week we're going to expand on that message of prayer as Paul expounds on exactly who should be prayed for. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired word preserved for you for all millennium till this day. Beginning in verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Amen. Please be seated. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. The title of the sermon is Pray for All People. Pray for All People. In verse 1, he does say to pray. This is the first duty of the church, to pray. We should read our Bibles. We should certainly come together. We should participate in the sacraments as God's people. But first of all, we should pray. We should be a people of prayer. But pray for who? Pray for all people. That's the first point. We should pray for all people. Remember the context of the letter is the false teachers. And it's speculated, probably rightly so, that these false teachers were what they called Judaizers. This was a big problem in the early church. The Jews were often the very first people to be saved in any congregation wherever they were. The Jews 
were where the, the church started in Israel. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. And they had a long history of service to God. They had the whole Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures. But these Judaizers, as Paul calls them, probably had a very limited and Jewish understanding, like Nicodemus maybe, of the scope of God's salvation, of the scope of His plan of redemption. You remember God had promised to bless the whole world through Abraham. It's as if the Jews in the time of Jesus had forgotten that this wasn't just for the physical descendants of Abraham. Indeed, that's part of Paul's primary message. is saying we are all in Christ as if children of Abraham. All of us. They had also forgotten an earlier promise. The promise to Adam and Eve after the fall. That God would align Himself with the seed of the woman in Christ. And that the seed of the serpent and those who served the serpent would be opposed to them, but that the serpent's head would eventually be crushed. These Judaizers, they seem to think that only the Jews were the ones that were cared about, that everyone who came into the church needed to become Jewish, they needed to be circumcised, they needed to follow all of the law, all of the Old Testament law, not just the moral law, which we embrace as Christians today, the Ten Commandments that we recited already. But all of the law, all 600 and some odd laws, they wanted all Gentiles to follow. There was even a a giant synod or conference just to deal with this question in Acts chapter 15. Should these new Gentile churches have to do everything that we do? As we see it, of course, they didn't have to do all that. But they thought they did. And the answer over and over again is no. No, that all pointed to Christ. All of it. It pointed to Christ. It served its purpose. You see, Jesus and Paul and the apostles all blew up the Judaizers' arguments by showing that the gospel was for the whole world. This was always God's plan, to envelop the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they could not fathom the expansion of this kingdom. They couldn't imagine. And you see some of this in Jesus' conversations with the Pharisees. If you remember, a lot of what Jesus did was say, your neighbor isn't just the person that lives next to you. Your neighbor is anyone in the world that you come in contact with. That's the person you are to love. But you see, the Jews had a very kind of closed attitude about who the gospel was for. So the early church really was kind of plagued by this idea that the Jews in the churches were propagating that they all needed to kind of become more Jewish. And you can see why they probably had positions of leadership as well. Who knew the Torah better than a Jew? A Jewish Christian who now understood the meaning of it all. You can see that they might rise to positions of authority very quickly. They had kind of a leg up. 
But what they had done, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Paul constantly comes against it. You don't have to observe all the feasts. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to follow all of the Old Testament civil laws and ceremonial laws anymore. And God didn't just send His Son for the Jews. It's just like Jesus told Nicodemus. I didn't come just for the Jewish people. Don't you see, Nicodemus, God so loved the world. It's not all about the Jews. The Jewish Messiah is for everyone. His plan of redemption includes all peoples, tribes, nations, and tongues. We see this in Revelation. They're going to be from everywhere. Praise God. So, with that context, you can see why Paul would say, we are to pray for people everywhere. All people is who you pray for. Not just people that are Jewish, or not just people in the local church. Again, it goes back to Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Who is my neighbor? This person that lives next to me? This person who goes to synagogue with me? Jesus says, no! Everyone is your neighbor. The scope that you are looking through is a limited one, and Jesus is saying, no, it's everyone. You pray for all people, Paul says. All people. Not just Christians, not just brothers. All people. And this will be important later, next week or the week after, when we talk about all people. What does Paul mean when he says here, pray for all people? Is he saying pull out the phone book? Start in the A's, work your way to the Z's, and then after Greenville, go to the next city over and keep working through phone books until you've prayed for every person in the whole world? Is that what Paul means? Of course not. He's talking about all kinds of people, isn't he? Not just Jewish people, not just people in the church. Pray for all people. All kinds of people. Including your secular leaders including people in civil government. We see that in verse 2. We are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. This is the second point. We're to pray for our leaders. Not Christian leaders. Yeah, pray for them too, but we're to pray for all leaders. It reminded me of one of my favorite parts of, I hate giving movie references, forgive me, but this is a good one. In Fiddler on the Roof, this was, if you haven't seen the movie or seen the play, it's about a Jewish community in Russia in the early 1900s, probably 1905. The city was Anatevka. It was a little tiny town of Jewish people. And the Tsar of Russia wasn't necessarily persecuting the Jewish people, but he had no love for the Jewish people either. I mean, for the czar in Russia, wiping any town out for his own purposes was not uncommon. But he certainly was no lover of the Jews. So the Jewish people in this one scene in this town come up to the Jewish rabbi and they asked, is there a blessing for the czar? And the rabbi thought for a minute and then he said, may God bless and keep the czar Far from here. 
So we may pray for our leaders like that, although I think Paul has in, in mind a much, much more broad scheme of prayer. We want to pray for all those who are in high positions. Not that God would keep them far from us, but that they be saved. When we pray for kings and for those in high position, we are being obedient to God. This is good and right, Paul says. We should pray for them. When we do so, we're acknowledging that God is the one who put them in power in the first place. Do you think in this earth, in the history of the planet, there's ever been a king who wasn't put in power by God? It's not possible. Everyone who is in power was put there by God whether they're good or bad. Jesus said as much to Pilate. John chapter 19, remember when Pilate was saying, don't you know I have the authority to to kill you? And Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it were not, what? Given to you from above. That's right. Only God puts people in power, whether by hook or crook or ascension to a throne or... Whatever. Coup. It may not be right, but the governing authorities are put there by God for His purposes. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So in these verses, when Paul says we are to pray for all people, especially for our leaders, for kings and all those who are in high authority, we're to pray for them as those appointed by God. So yes, we should pray for all types of people. Pray for those outside the church, inside the church. Pray for the saved, for the unsaved. Pray for the sick, for the healthy. Yes. The rich, the poor, the friends, our enemies and all in authority. And in the Roman context, this means that you were praying for the people who persecuted you. If you don't think there was persecution in the early church, read Acts. It was already starting. Pray for your persecutors. You say, well, that doesn't sound right. Well, Jesus taught it in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. It's not just good leaders we pray for. We pray for all of our leaders, even those who would persecute us. As Christians have for two millennia now, we pray for them. We strive to honor them and love them. So Paul's not talking about a prayer that keeps the leaders away from us. As the Jewish rabbi in Anatavka prayed, no, he's talking about a prayer that they rule well and a prayer for their salvation. 1 Peter 2.17 Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. Your homework is to go back and research a little bit of what the Roman government was like. How they treated the church. And then hear Peter's words. Honor the emperor. Pray for those in leadership. 
Notice that Paul doesn't ever tell the church to take up arms and fight any government, any people, to defend themselves. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that the church should oppose a state that opposes the church. Or that Christians should only submit to righteous government. He doesn't say any of that. He says all the authority is established by God and you need to submit to that authority. That's the default answer. It's not resistance. It's submission. It's trusting God. Now, of course, there are some nuances and some people focus on the nuance rather than the default. The default answer is submit to your governing authorities because they've been appointed by God and pray for them. Rome was an unjust and cruel place for a Christian. And Paul calls the people in Ephesus to pray for their authorities. The church faced severe persecution in the Roman times. They didn't take up arms against them. They submitted and the church flourished. Now, of course, we don't want persecution. You'd have to be crazy to pray for persecution. Nobody wants that. We don't. That's one of the reasons why Paul says here that we pray for our leaders. We want leaders who lead well, who protect their citizens so that we can live godly and quiet lives. So, we pray for all kinds of people, including our leaders. We pray that they rule well. The third point, we pray for our leaders and it it produces fruit. Not spiritual fruit, but listen to what... Paul says, we lead a quiet and peaceful life, or a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know, God hears the prayers of His people. Your prayers aren't throwaway. Satan wants to convince you that when you pray, it means nothing. You're not changing a thing. It's like throwing a drop of water into the ocean. It means nothing. What are you doing? You think God cares about your prayer? Satan's a liar. You pray, and you expect God to answer. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. That's Proverbs 21. Pray that the the God of creation would turn the king's heart. It's interesting that when Jesus teaches that we should be persistent in prayer, he talks about an immoral judge. Luke 18, he told a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And there was a judge who didn't fear God or respect men, and a widow who kept coming day after day saying, give me justice. He refused, but eventually he gave in. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will I not give justice? Will God not give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them and speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Like the persistent widow, the fruit of our consistent prayers for all people, for our leaders, will be justice. A land ruled in good order. This doesn't mean that every government will be biblical government. That doesn't mean that it will be ruled by the Bible, although that would be great but it will be a place where we can live godly and dignified lives. We will live in peace and quiet. 
Government is a common grace. God didn't have to provide government. Have you thought about that? When He created the earth and brought people into groups after the Tower of Babel, He didn't have to provide government. He didn't have to make kings. But He did. This is a common grace. It's a blessing. And He's the one who raises up the governing authorities for His glory. And all humans benefit from good government. All humans, not just Christians. So we pray for our leaders. We pray that we can live in peace and quiet. And many are concerned today with negative trends that we see in government. And this is valid. But let's, let's do a quick reality check. We are reaping the wonderful prayers of our ancestors today. And we still do. We have more freedom and more liberty than any people on the face of the planet today. This is God's grace. We have more prosperity and peace than any place on the planet. How many grandmas prayed in the past 200 years for their children and grandchildren? And this continues. I can't imagine that God hasn't honored that prayer We should not presume on that prayer. We should continue to pray. But don't think that we live in some horrible place in the world. This is a great blessing to be here. Everyone wants to be here. And when it comes to spiritual life, there are more true Christians in America than anywhere else in the world. The best seminaries are in America. The best preachers are in America. The best theologians come from America. If you doubt any of this, buy a ticket anywhere else in the world and spend a month there. You will know (laughs) that here in America, everything is better. Why is that? Because we're better? Because we deserve any of it? No. God has shed His grace upon us. And we should not squander this beautiful temple using the Solomon analogy. We should not squander this and turn our hearts away from God. Just as He burned that temple and crushed that land, so we'll come to this place. So when you think that we have it really bad and things are terrible and horrible, remember the great blessing that we have. Take a trip to Africa. Take a trip to Asia. Take a trip to South America. Talk to the Nasikos. They can tell you what it's like in other countries. They just got back. We need to humble ourselves and pray. We need to seek the face of God and thank Him for the place that He's brought us, the great blessing that we enjoy, and not take any of it for granted. We need to pray for our leaders. Why? Because when we pray, God provides a place of peace where we can worship Him in a godly and dignified way. It's about worship. The fourth reason and the fourth point is that there's a specific reason that we pray for our leaders, for all people, but especially our leaders. Paul says this is good in verse 3. It's good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. This is good. 
to pray for all people, especially those who persecute us. It's good. All the leaders who would seek our harm, it's good to pray for them. And not only that, to pray for their salvation. God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Pray for the salvation of our leaders. So whether you like our government today or not, whether you like the leaders you have or not, pray for them. Stop complaining and start praying. Pray that they rule well. Pray that they get saved. Can you imagine if all the people in Washington, D.C. were saved? Can you imagine if even 10% of them had true faith in Christ? How that would change so much. So don't shake your fist at God and complain about the leadership He's given you. You pray for these people. Pray for them. The Bible is clear on this point. He's established them. We should pray. Jesus had an opportunity to resist Rome, if you remember. He didn't. He submitted to the government of Rome. You remember when he was arrested and they came around him in the garden with this whole army? He said, don't you know I can call on my father to send legions of angels? You might think, well, yeah, he's Jesus. He's got a mission to accomplish here on earth. Of course, he's going to do exactly what he's supposed to. Of course, he's going to submit to this. He submitted Not only to his father's will, but to the government. As unjust as it was, he's our example. You also have a mission on this earth. You're an ambassador for Jesus. So when we consider all that Christ has done, his sacrifice on the cross, when we consider the great love with which he loved us as being part of in part due to his submission to the government, it lends great context to Paul's words that we should pray. Pray for all people, especially those in authority. Now we come to a time of the Lord's Supper, considering all that Christ did in submission not only to his Father, but indeed to the Roman government. Remember that Jesus, because of this, he defeated sin and death on the cross. And when He comes again, all things will be made right. But at this time, let me read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. This is right before Jesus was to go to the cross. First Corinthians eleven twenty three through twenty six. For I received what I delivered to you that on the night in which our Lord was betrayed he took the bread, and after having given thanks he broke it. He said, "This is my body, broken for you." In the same manner, after he took the cup, and he said, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. For as often as you drink." The cup and eat the bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is not a table that is only for members of this church. This is Christ's table. If you have faith in Christ and you're a member of a church in good standing, you are welcome to come and partake of this sacrament. 
The sacrament displays Christ's death visually as we eat the bread and we drink the cup. We're encouraged in our souls. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, the Father of all mercies, we thank You for the sacrifice of Your Son. We thank You for the great work that You accomplished. The great expansion of the plan of redemption as understood by the Jews to include the entire world. This was always Your plan and it was accomplished by Christ. He came and He suffered and He died for us. He suffered and He died. He bled for us. We pray that You would take these common elements, the bread and the juice, and that You would use them for Your holy purposes, that You would consecrate them for this purpose, that we would be spiritually encouraged in every way as we remember the Gospel. We remember what Christ has done. We pray that You would unite our hearts in brotherly love as the family of God that we would partake of this table with great joy, with great gladness as we anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will one day sit around together forever proclaiming the glories of our God. Encourage our hearts, we pray. Be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen.